Well, welcome to Heart of the Matter Cardiopod. I'm Chris O'Connor, cardiologist at the Inova Health System and adjunct professor of medicine at Duke University. And we're here to really launch an innovative program of, of a Cardiopod focusing on innovation in cardiology and cardiology research. And today I'm excited that we have a novel concept known as the Heart Failure Collaboratory. I'm excited to have the guests that we have today, and I'll I'll introduce them. They're around the table. We have Joanne Lindenfeld, who's a heart failure cardiologist and professor of medicine from Vanderbilt University. We also have Dr. Scott Solomon, professor of medicine at uh, Harvard Medical School and heart failure specialist who is with us today. We have uh, Dr. Mitch Sopka, who's the chief of heart failure at the uh, Nova Health System. And Dr. Bill Abraham, who is a professor of medicine, Ohio State University, heart failure specialist. Dr. Mona Fuzat, who is adjunct associate professor of medicine, Duke University, and heart failure pharmacist. And Dr. Peter Carson, who is heart failure specialist, near emeritus, Georgetown University professor, and, and now uh, residing in Rehoboth Beach. Welcome to the uh, Heart of the Matter podcast. And before we get started, I want to ask each and every one of you to tell us something unique about yourself. And we'll start with Dr. Fuza. Oh, wow. I have to go first. I'm going to say I used to live in Los Angeles and I was a drummer and I've actually recorded a track with a band in a studio. I don't think many people know that. Fantastic. Well, while we're on music, uh, Scott Solomon. Yeah. I thought this was going to be unique, but now that Frank Ruziska told everybody at the ESC that I was a musician, all 5,000 people in the room, I don't know that it's unique anymore, but I am a jazz pianist and I didn't know, Mona, you were a drummer, but someday we're going to have to play together. Well, we, we aspired at some point to get the S3 gallopers formed. So, uh, Joanne? So an interesting thing is that I paid my way through college by being a late night DJ. Awesome. We have a musical team here. Okay, Bill. Well, I have absolutely no musical talent whatsoever. I guess, well, what's, what can I tell you? I have eight children, including the 10-year-old twin girls that just got off the school bus. Well, gone. you're going to be paying tuition to college for a long time. Mitch? I will not be retired or a professor emeritus for many years to come. Let's see. I, it was in a high school band, but it, it's not near the uh, performance uh, ability of my colleagues here. I will say that I have some athletic talent, sort of. I was a national champion, ultimate Frisbee player, and that is how I met my wife. Oh. And were you on scholarship for that at UVA? I can't remember. If only a scholarship existed for that. <laughs> Dr. Carson. What should we say? We'll say that I, I'm the, the chief of cardiology with, for Rehoboth Beach. How's that? What about me? Well, I aspired to be a lifeguard. That was my first job and uh, placed in the Master Nationals in swimming just a couple of years ago. And, and I'm looking to see in, in my retirement if I can make it back to the lifeguard stand. So there you go. Well, let's get back to the topic at hand, and uh, that is the Heart Failure Collaboratory, and, and what is it, and why is it an innovative concept? Dr. Fuza? Sure. So the Heart Failure Collaboratory is it formed organically out of a think tank meeting. It's a public-private partnership with the FDA, 
and includes a number of different stakeholders. We have patients, most importantly, a lot of industry members, both drug and device developers, and a number of academics, many represented here. And then we have some NIH and payer participants, and then a lot of the FDA is also participating. So it's quite a good blend of various stakeholders that participate in clinical trials and really came from the concept of stimulating innovation and development in the field of heart failure, where a lot of other therapeutic areas have received attention from investors and investment. We found that they were starting to move away from cardiology because of the nature of our trials and the cost. And so this really was meant to stimulate interest in continuing to develop therapies for patients. And really, when you talk about the development, Mitch, and what the collaboratory can do, I mean, this process is really broken, right? When you look at how long it takes from discovery of a molecule or a device to get it into clinical trials, all the phases of clinical trials, get it approved with meaningful endpoints and results and trial designs, and then have third-party payers accept those results. I mean, this ecosystem right now is really challenged. Could you comment on that? I mean, I think you described that perfectly, which is there are all these barriers to getting an idea, a conceptualized idea to a new product that has been tested, has a very high risk of failure all the way along, preclinical testing, clinical testing, phase one, phase two, phase three. And once you finally can get that very small percentage of new investigational therapeutics, either devices or drugs, through that evaluation system. You've generated the evidence, you manage to get it through regulatory approval, and then the final barrier is payer approval so that patients actually have access to it. That is a huge task. If you take into account the entire ecosystem of, of options, millions to, to hundreds of millions of dollars, and many, many years to actually get something to patients. The failure rate is so huge that the outlay, the financial and time commitment outlay is massive such that only very few companies can really participate in that system. And there's a huge disincentive to really take a ton of risks because of the cost of getting something through that process. Well, let's jump into that a little bit deeper, Joanne, particularly on the device side. And I'll ask Bill Abraham to also comment on device development. Have there been any innovations, any movement in this space to, to make it easier? I mean, at one point, almost all devices were being developed overseas and not in this country. That seems to have pulled back, but we still have challenges. We can get the devices through the clinical trials and it still takes time, but then we've got the third parties there too. So Joanne, what do you see as the challenges in 2022 for device development? The device trials, there are far fewer patients, but they're still very difficult to recruit patients because there's a lot of centers that aren't involved in devices. And they're often small companies with limited budgets. So part of the thing has been the breakthrough designation, which allows us to have devices approved for intermediate endpoints and then get out on the market and then develop them so that these small companies can act, anticipate some funding to keep those trials moving on to get some results about heart failure hospitalizations and mortality. So it's been very important there. And as you said earlier, 
the number of device trials has gone down. These are almost always small companies that then are later bought up by larger companies. So I, I think this has been incredibly important getting everyone involved in that space. Bill, what would you say to that? Yeah, no, I, I uh, agree completely with what Joanne has already said. I may expand just a bit. There are unique challenges to device development, but the climate, the environment for doing so in the U.S. has improved. Uh, the FDA's early feasibility study program encourages first in human and early phase studies in the United States so that less and less of this first in uh, human work needs to be done offshore. I think that's a positive development. Joanne mentions the Breakthrough Devices pathway uh, for approval, which tries to streamline the uh, approval of innovative devices for the treatment of human disease, life-threatening and irreversibly debilitating disorders like congestive heart failure. And so I think uh, FDA is doing its job in trying to bring innovative technologies back to the U.S. and streamlining their approval. But with all of that said, there are still plenty of barriers, not the least of which is just enrollment in the clinical trials that we do. And I think that might be said for clinical trials uh, in general, both drug and device trials, although there are maybe different challenges in enrollment in, in device trials. But that process of completing enrollment and follow-up in these trials takes uh, much longer than it should. I think part of the mission of the Heart Failure Collaboratory in developing lean case report forms, standardized definitions, focusing on uh, underserved populations, the work of the Heart Failure Society of America and developing a research network and so on and so forth are all designed to try to move this process along much more quickly than it moves along today. And then when we contrast that with drug development, Scott, what are the similarities? What are the differences? I mean, it still takes a long time. I mean, in your career and my career, if you do this in series, we're going to be on the beach like Peter Carson pretty soon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, we have therapies, drugs that have been tested for the last 20 years that are still not in the market. For example, Omicamton-McCarble, that program started a long time ago. I think one of the, the goals of the collaboratory, and, and I think a goal that we're actually making some headway with is thinking of ways to make this whole process a lot more efficient. One of the great things about it is that those of us who are involved in pharmacologic therapies are able to hear from people like Joanne and Bill and the companies that are working on the device side and the people at the FDA who are thinking about devices so that we can start to think a little bit differently than we normally would be thinking about um, the development of uh, of new therapeutics. Uh, and that's been a fantastic. And I don't think of, there's any other way that we would have been able to really get people together, not just the device and the pharmaceutical people, but also the academics, industry, FDA, all in the same room, thinking about the same kinds of problems. You also alluded to the fact that once a therapy is available, it's like the tree fell in the forest, but was there anyone to hear it? We've seen that it can take years and years and years from the time of a successful clinical trial, FDA approval, even guidelines before we have implementation of the therapies in the patients who need them. 
And we've lived that over the last four or five years in the collaboratory, looking at what happened with Sucubitrol Valsartan, for example, which was taken up really quite slowly after fairly uh, strong evidence in clinical trials. And that's helped us think about what are the other factors that influence how both physicians and payers and the very complex group of people, Mona keeps reminding me, it's not just the insurance companies, it's the PBMs and so forth that are involved in determining who gets what therapies when. Lots of challenges. I want to ask Peter Carson, who's one of the big uh, impediments, I think, to efficiency in clinical trials because he's he's been at the head of more uh, clinical events committees uh, probably than anybody in in the world. And uh, these events committees are expensive, they're laborious, they take a long time, and he only tries to advocate for the very high endpoints like mortality, which means that about 80% of the patients going through these trials don't contribute to the endpoints. So, Peter, what what could you say you would have done differently with your, with your life and with your body of work that could have helped the efficiency of trials? I think with that uh, preamble, uh, I'm going to have to go to the beach. So it's <laughs> been nice talking to you all. But let me just um, shift this around a little bit. Um, I'm going to be a little bit contrarian here. And I'll take you back uh, many, many years to a meeting um, where the upper level Novartis people after Valheft came down and talked about their business, if you will, to a group of people that were assembled to discuss the Valheft results. And the head of the research group went on to describe how many billion dollar drugs the company needed to keep going in its current form. And this incidentally was what, 22 years ago, maybe? Like the old joke about if you really don't like any somebody, you get them a St. Bernard puppy for Christmas because then the puppy grows into a giant dog that eats you out of house and home. I'm not clear the drug companies, how much they really want to get smaller, particularly the larger companies. There is an entrenched bureaucracy that exists. And I'm not altogether sure how much the FDA wants to get smaller too. And as part of that journey that you described, Chris, of doing endpoints and variety of things in clinical trials in the, the grassroots level, I'm always amazed at the things that we are required to go and look at. And uh, we're all happy to do it. Uh, that's a way we all go by. But I do remember on one of the phone calls with the collaboratory, someone brought up the notion of saying, well, the agency is saying they want to move faster and that they're more user-friendly, et cetera. And then industry people said, yes, but when we go and talk to the agency, that's not the answer we're getting. So higher level on the collaboratory calls, it all sounds very good. Then you ask the companies, well, why are we doing all these things? And they said, well, because the FDA tells us we're supposed to. Now, we've gone back sometimes to the FDA and said, well, are you really asking for the companies to do all these things and document this and document that? And the FDA says, well, no, actually, we're not. They're moving that themselves. So where does that come? Does that come back to the internal bureaucracy of the companies? Does it come back to everyone always likes to blame lawyers? So is it 
the risk management people within companies that then are saying, well, no, no, we have to go do these things. And the FDA says so. And then the FDA, when push says, well, no, we're not. But the companies say, well, they tell us they are. So to me, the jury is a bit out on how much the really big stakeholders want to move to become smaller and more efficient, even though the word is that they should. And the story with the small device companies, of course, is they start off small, but then they often end up being swallowed up by a big company with a big bureaucracy. And that's sometimes the goal, sometimes the way it moves. I wish I could feel better about the notion that things would move to a more a smaller, more efficient system that would move faster. I guess I would, I'm waiting to see that happen. Wow, that's a point of view. Scott, to get to what Peter was saying, I mean, this, it really can't be true, right? That companies want to have, they obviously have these big organizations and in order to keep them going, they've got to, there's got to be an ROI from all this research investment, but they really don't want these 10-year, 12-year timelines of development and then 10 years of implementation. This is way out of bounds for what would make sense from any model that would be beneficial to patients. Oh, yeah. Clearly, um, I mean, they would love to have a two or three year development cycle and then a much longer time frame. But, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, we've been fortunate in the last seven or so years of cardiovascular medicine is that we've had some wins and that's been seen by industry. And they've seen that, yes, we can do trials that are successful. We can come up with new therapies because it had been a while before that. And I think that's reinvigorated the field very much. And then putting that together with the kind of discussions that we've been having at the Heart Failure Collaboratory, particularly in improving efficiency, uh, novel methodology, for example, we've spent a lot of time talking about novel statistical approaches to doing trials, including trial designs, adaptive designs, things that can make us much more efficient potentially and move faster. And we get a chance to bounce those ideas off people at the FDA, our colleagues, other industry. And that I think allows us to think about ways to move much faster and much more efficiently. I couldn't agree more. Now we want to wrap up here and just get sort of final thoughts from everyone. Let's go around the room and say, if the collaboratory could identify a success in a year or two or three years, what would that be? What would it look like? What would success look like, Bill? Well, first, I, I would say that I think the collaboratory already has a number of successes in terms of organizations like this in which I participated over the years. I think there have been more deliverables of substance from the collaboratory than any other group that I've worked with. The development of lean case report forms, standardized definitions, statements about the representation of underrepresented minorities and women in trials and so on and so forth, very important. And in fact, at FDA, at least my experience on the devices side has been that they actively promote this output from the collaboratory, recommending the use of the Hartshire Collaboratory Lean Case Report form for Hartshire clinical trials, for example. But I think we have to continue to build upon that. And ultimately, I think we can track our success in terms of the adoption of these tools and the shortening of timelines. 
to regulatory approval on the device side in particular, because the technology development cycle and the iteration of technology occurs so quickly that quite frankly, the device that you take into a clinical trial today is replaced by a next generation device a couple or three years from now. So these cycles are very fast and we have to match a development program that lines up with that. Mitch? I would agree completely with Bill, but I want to shoot for the moonshot here of what the collaboratory can accomplish. And I think that is with the payers. And I think that if we could get the payers to collaborate on the process that we are describing, where we have all other stakeholders providing input on how to create and design development programs and clinical trials to generate evidence that then leads to regulatory approval. If at the same time we were generating evidence that would lead to payer approval and utilization and patient access at a reasonable cost and a reasonable tier of kind of payment and coverage, I think that that is where we know that we have truly been a success. But I think, as I said, I think that is a moonshot. And I think that will be our goal for many years to come. But I think we've made great progress because the payers are involved and engaged. And now we just need to figure out how to take it forward. Peter, what say you? If timelines are able to change and the amount of material that is brought in is then streamlined with the concept of a lean CRF, that's one move. But I really like what Mitch said that bringing the payers into the game. So this ends up being a process that does not end up being disjointed between approvals and then payers paying for the way things are, are reimbursed. Perhaps the Secubitral Valsartan story is one of those, a good example of that. If we can move all, that all in the same direction, that would be really a tremendous advance forward. Joanne? I agree with all those things. There have already been a lot of successes. And another one, the Hartford Collaboratory is very quick to respond. And the COVID recommendations was and talking about statistics involved in clinical trials and what should we do with these clinical trials that are ongoing right now? We have to make decisions was an important one. I think also we're I think we're going to be able to have a pretty big impact in diversity, both in more diverse patients and more diverse investigators, I think because we have everybody together. But I would say, I agree with Mitch, but I would think the real moonshot would be with all these people together, if we could develop a research infrastructure within the United States that was something like the cancer folks have, where people could be supported in this endeavor and that people could be paid for their work in clinical trials and that payers would pay into this, but Medicare potentially too, would to me form a really incredible structure in which to do clinical trials rapidly in the United States. Fantastic. Scott, can you top that? Well, I can't top it, but I'm going to add to it and bring up something that we haven't talked about today, which I think is also one of the great gems of the collaboratory, which is that we've included a lot of junior people who are early in their training. And remember, clinical trials is the kind of thing that you can't really learn unless you do them and unless you're part of them. I'm really proud that we've brought in a lot of junior investigators who've done amazing work. And Mitch, you used to be one, but you're not anymore. But it's just been really fabulous to see that they have been able to contribute as much as some of the senior people. And I think that if we have a legacy, it will be to train the next generation of clinical trials. Really well stated. Mona, you get the last word. All right. Yeah. I think the points that everyone made 
are exactly spot on. Um, you know, we started the first meeting through a think tank about learning from our colleagues and oncology was one of those that we stressed. And so if you think about that, their success in getting patients in trials, efficiency of development, how quickly they have been able to move their field and actually have an impact on mortality. I think that's what we really are aiming to do and get those patients new therapies faster and also keeping the companies engaged in developing products for heart failure. So they're not turning to something that could turn a profit much quicker, but taking just a few days off of development time has huge investment benefits. So I think all of those things combined are really important. And then as others have mentioned, we have had a focus on diversity, both including diverse patients in our trials and training the next generation of diverse investigators to attract diverse patients into trials is another area we, we can save for the next podcast. Well, this has been a terrific conversation. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today and talking about the Heart Flare Collaboratory, how we can make the development process better for our patients. And we're looking forward to continuing this conversation. It doesn't end today. And our next podcast for the heart of the matter, we'll be discussing statistical concepts. So we're going to have to make this, that one very conversational. And so brush up on your math and we'll, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.